This morning we're going to talk a little bit about debt. Kind of a sad subject, huh? Debt. The average American deals with debt regularly. In fact, economists warn that consumer debt is getting up to what they call scary levels, as many people routinely spend more than they take in. 2001 consumer credit, they say, grew at twice the rate it did in the year 2000, so people are just piling on their own debt. The percent of people's incomes, they say, that makes to, that they need to make minimum debt payments, you know, just a minimum thing, like on your credit cards or whatever, every month was about 12% in 1994, and it's like over 14% now, and people who make less money have more debt. People between twenty-five dollars and $50,000, they say, spend 40% of their income paying debt every month. Uh, on average. So we do live with sort of an I'll enjoy it now and worry about a later mentality, uh, frame of mind. Now, of course, economists are interested in money, but Romans 13 is not focused on consumer debt relations, ratios, and all that stuff, but on other kinds of debt. And that's the other kind of debt I want to focus on this morning. You thought I was going to talk about your debt. See, now just relax. But if you think about it, this other kind of debt is much greater burden-wise. It's a much greater... But, you know, we don't actually think that way. And probably by the end, you're going to go, oh, good, he's just telling me how spiritual to be. I was really worried he was going to tell me to pay off my debts. That's backward thinking, for one thing. But um, I really do want you to focus on what Paul says our true debts are, our major debts are. That's not to say you shouldn't have your debts paid off, but um, it's the other kind of thing I want to focus on. You're aware that we have debts that is, obligations, that uh, things we owe and we're expected to pay in the way we conduct ourselves by God, debts to God and to one another. In fact, all of our obligations to our fellow men, fellow human beings as Christians, can be summed up in just one single word, Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Do you want to know how to see life in very simple terms? It's right there. Love one another. That is the debt you owe to every human being you'll ever meet. That is the debt you owe to everyone, to love them as Christ would, desiring and working for what is best for them. That's what love is. It is a governing principle for life. How can I be a benefit to this person, whoever it might be? And it applies to everyone, even people you live with. The people that often at the bottom of your be nice to list. Your husband, your wife, your children, parents, brothers and sisters. All of those kind of things. Everyone, you have a debt of love to them. Love is the beginning and the end of Paul's thinking in this section of Romans. You know, the section describing the authentic Christian life, which we've been tracing over these last months, began in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and it carries all the way through to the end of chapter 13, and it began with love. Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy, right, without masks. And continued in chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And all that follows is really an explanation of unhypocritical love for God and for one another, lived out. The authentic Christian gives preference to other people in honor. The authentic Christian is diligent. The authentic Christian is rejoicing in hope, persevering in trials, praying, meeting people's needs, loving strangers, practicing hospitality, humility, 
and perhaps the most difficult of all, being kind to one's enemies. Verse 17 of chapter 12 says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then in verse 19, Paul says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He doesn't use the word love regarding enemies in those verses at the end of chapter 12, but he's describing the love that Jesus said we should have even for our enemies. And I think Paul's really just saving the words for his big summation statement here in chapter 13, because that governs all of it. It begins, chapter 12, verse 9, concludes the end of chapter 13 here. Love is the beginning and the summary of the authentic Christian life. So first he covers the place of government in chapter 13 in the Christian's life, an important issue because we must never take revenge. Remember he says, never to take your own revenge and leave room for the wrath of God. Part of that, and part of the ability for us to do that, is to rely on the fact that governments are there to take revenge for us. So we don't take personal vengeance. If there's a criminal level of revenge to be taken where you know, something criminal has happened to you, then the government can handle that. It's God's instrument of vengeance. It says there in verse 4 of chapter 13, the government is an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. That's their job, not your job. Your job is to love your enemies and pray for them and do what's best for them. So first Paul gets that issue out of the way. It's not unimportant. He just uh, explains it out. The Christian simply needs to be in subjection to that divinely ordained government. So all through these verses, we've seen what authentic Christianity looks like, and it looks like Jesus Christ. It looks like his living. It looks like what he would be like if he were here today. It looks like doing for the well-being of other people. That's how it looks. Even one's enemies, just like Christ did. It looks like love. And verse 8 of chapter 13 marks a transition to take all of these specific things and turn them into a universal obligation. That's how he sums it up. At verse 8, we can no longer leave anybody out. In verse 7, we see the word do, at least if you've got a New American Standard Bible, I don't know what the other one says. It says, render to all what is due them, talking about the government, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Then in verse 8, following that very narrow focus on government in verse 7, we render what is due to the secular authorities. Then in verse 8, the same Greek word appears, only it's translated O in the New American Standard Bible in verse 8. But now everyone is included, see. He's saying, render what is due, what you owe, in verse 7 to the government. Then in verse 8, owe nothing to anyone. See, now he's broadened it out. Except what? To love one another. Now, in what sense is love a debt? Well, in one way, I think it is simply what God requires of us. It is a debt of obedience to our sovereign. When your sovereign gives you a command, you have an obligation, a debt to, to obey. Love to all men, even our enemies, seems really difficult. But you know what? It only seems difficult because we are fallen and wicked creatures. That's why it's hard more concerned with ourselves than with the glory of God. If our passion, 100% of our heart's desire was the glory of God, it would be an easy thing 
to love our enemies as it was for Christ. By easy, I don't mean not hard. I mean we could do it and willingly and gladly. Will we all that we were created to be, love to all would be natural and joyful, an opportunity to please our Heavenly Father, doing exactly what He wants us to do, which would be enough for us and it would satisfy us. Sin in us makes doing this possible only with divine aid because it's so contrary to our natures. Still, it's what should be our normal debt of obedience to honor God by loving everyone, even our enemies. But there's a deeper sense, I think, that we owe a debt of love, and that's found in our own salvation. You remember Romans chapter 5? In verse 6, Paul said, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 of chapter 5, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. That's us. God looks at us, helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. That's what I've got a planet full of. That is the condition we were in when God acted on our behalf for us. He moved for our good, not in response to our repentance, but well before it. In fact, His movement is the cause of our repentance. God loves His enemies. He loved us when we were enemies. He sought us. He bought us with the gift of His own Son's agony. Jesus died for us. Why? What does the Bible say? God so loved the world. That's why. As saved sinners then, as uh, ungodly people, enemies of God that have been redeemed, what possible claim could we maintain against our enemies? If God was so gracious to us when we were ungodly and sinners and helpless and enemies of His, how can we, how dare we say, I don't, I don't owe a debt of love to that person. They've done too many wrongs to me. How many wrongs have you done in the face of heaven, openly and defiantly? And he still loved you. No right, we have no right to withhold love to others who by our reckoning are undeserving because no one can be more undeserving than you and I before the throne of God's holiness. So we have a debt in our own wonderful salvation to love all that we meet, the good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked. And because of our own nature, that can be a very difficult thing, but that is our debt. This is so much who we are that Paul says it's our debt to do this. There seems to be a suggestion here that we should not be in debt except for this. Don't owe anybody anything except to love them. That's where you should hope to be in life. You have no obligations at all except love. So much greater than the financial dimensions to all of that. That's not to say you can't have a mortgage or you can't ever buy anything on credit, but the, the Bible does allow for a certain kind of borrowing in the Old Testament, but we should certainly see this as an admonition to never dishonor Christ by being faithless to our creditors. We have to love them too. You have to love the bank? You do. People work there. 
We must be wise and just in our handling of money and certainly not overburden ourselves with debt. But the main point here is not mortgages and credit cards and things like that. It's about love. That is our great obligation. And you know what? This is a debt that can never be fully repaid. You're never going to get to a point in this life, at least, where you say, I've done all the loving I need to do. Debt's paid. Can you imagine somebody thinking that way? Ah! Now I can turn a cold shoulder to those wicked people down the street. It never gets to there because God is continually being merciful to you. So that debt remains. The obligation to his sovereignty remains as long as he is sovereign and that isn't going to change. So our very existence in Christ is due to his love which continually flows to us from him. And at what point do we who are so in need of grace withhold or cut off love from others? Can't be done if we are to be true to our Father's love. Just can't be done. Now, the second half of verse 8 reveals a very significant truth. Something vitally necessary for your proper understanding of right and wrong and what it is that God expects of us. Verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Wow. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. This is a very important truth about law. You know, Christians can become very confused about the law. You run into people all the time like, is the law bad or is the law good? I mean, how does that fit in? Often it sounds like something, like we disregard the law to people because we're so opposed to the law as a means of salvation. That is, we know because God says it, Romans chapter 3 verse 20, for example, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Right? We know that. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And we fear the delusion of men who believe that God will approve of them because they're keeping his law. He will not. Not because he wouldn't approve if they kept his law, but because nobody really keeps his law. And it's a delusion to think you can earn God's favor by keeping his law, because nobody does it. It is the Christian's duty, and it's the passion of our heart, really, to cry out and say, don't rely on your works, don't rely on law-keeping on the great day of reckoning. Don't do it! Because you're going to come up short, and we don't want you to come up short, because we love you. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. To some, it may sound like we reject the law because we believe God, that in chapter 3, verse 26 of Romans, he says that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And the whole argument of chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Romans is that our salvation comes by faith. Grace through faith. Salvation comes by His grace through faith. Apart from the works of the law. Apart from it. So we don't like God's law, right? We're against His law. No! Paul would even say, no, make it a time. Never! No, uh-uh! Not a chance. We're against human arrogance. We're against self-deception. We're against people thinking that they can achieve salvation by law-keeping, but we're not against God's law. There's nothing wrong with God's law. Romans chapter 7, God's law is holy and righteous and good, Paul says. The fault is entirely ours that we don't keep it. Nothing wrong with the law. But when we do find salvation by God's grace, and when we do put our faith in Him and receive 
His mercy. And when we are born again to a living hope and we understand it all, by faith in Jesus, the Savior of the world, it is at that time that we see the law for what it really is. A beautiful expression of God's holy character. Pure, honest, faithful, true, righteous, holy, and above all, full of love. The law is a description of love. Look at verse 9. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of the laws forbidding this or commanding that are simply what love is. That's what they are. Now Paul is focusing here on our relations with other people. You know the law has two tables. You know that word tablet and table, they all kind of go together. They talk about the two tables of the law. You know Moses had two tablets. Ever see Charlton Heston come down from there? He said two tablets. Versus law, I mean the commandments one through four on the first tablet are, are obedience that we owe to God. And the other six, five through ten, are the duties we owe to human beings. That's usually how the law is divided. It's called the two tables. Jesus said, if you recall, in Matthew 22, that the greatest commandment wasn't even on those two tables. It was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. Right? That's the first table summed up. Then Jesus said, the second is like it. The second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second table. Then Jesus said, and Paul echoes him here, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Paul says of the second table, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's exactly what Jesus had said. It's thoroughly unbecoming a Christian to dismiss in any way the moral law of God. It is our solemn duty to live that law as an expression of love. That's what it is. So don't fall into the trap of saying or even thinking that God's list of don'ts is somehow constrictive or limiting or he's trying to spoil my life and confine me or whatever. Those who think that way are against love because the law is an expression of love. Because verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. The law is only expressed in negative terms sometimes because we have a bent towards sin. Love must be expressed in negative terms to sinners because we do what we shouldn't do. So the law has to say, don't do that. So it's, hey brother, love means not doing this. Often. And if we have experienced the gracious, saving love of a righteous and holy God, we know that his love is not a restriction, but it's true freedom. What did Jesus say about freedom? The truth shall make you free. Sin is not freedom. Virtue is never bondage, and sin is never freedom, ever. Peter says of the wicked, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Right? Isn't that true? Think of all those worldly monsters out there tempting us. Oh, 
oh, you're so restricted. If only you were as free as I am. And they're utterly enslaved to their own passions and the flesh and their own desires. There's no self-control. Matthew Henry said 300 years ago, love is a living, active principle of obedience to the whole law. And he's right. Puritans, man, they knew. Keep it always in mind as you read and contemplate the Bible that the law is not a contrast with love. The law is an expression of love. The law is from God. And God is love, right? So it follows that the law that he gives could be nothing less than love expressed in action or from the negative side, refraining from evil actions. That's what love is. That's pretty simple. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Paul says. And he uses four of the Ten Commandments here, just picking them seemingly randomly, from the second table to demonstrate his point. Let's look at those. Verse 9, you shall not commit adultery. Why not? Well, it's a sin, right? But it involves another person in sin. So to commit adultery with someone is to drag another human being into the pit with you and force them to be under the wrath of God, to draw them, to entice them, to hurt them. It's always interesting to me how people justify adultery in the name of love because it's the opposite of love. I love you so much, I want you to be under the condemnation of God. What kind of thinking is that? Leading someone into sin isn't love. Delighting in sin isn't love. Celebrating sin is not love. Adultery wrongs not only the innocent spouse of that other person, but the co-adulterer too. Because it brings God's wrath on that person. That's not love. You shall not murder. Well, that sin obviously involves harm, right? Taking a life. But Jesus said murder was hatred. That too diminishes people, cuts them down, hurts them. There's no love in that. You shall not steal. That's pretty obvious. Nobody wants to be stolen from. I've never met a person that liked to be stolen from, ever. It hurts other people to steal. Not only removing their property, but it makes them feel less secure. It actually rips away some of the security in their life. It hurts to be stolen from. Of course, you could get grand with this as well. How much of our nation's wealth has to be directed to security and law enforcement and insurance claims and higher prices on goods, all because people steal. It hurts the whole system to steal. Theft hurts everyone. If nobody stole, if nobody stole, everyone's life would be vastly improved. You would have, a whole culture would have so much more wealth, material wealth. Love couldn't steal. Love couldn't do that. You shall not covet You know, it's not that love despises others because they have more or wants to see someone taken down a peg or two. Love doesn't do that, does it? Man, they got a big house. There's something wrong with them. They got a really cool RV. I hate them. <laughs> Whatever, you know. <laughs> or just desiring what belongs to someone else, you know. Not being happy for them, but instead focusing on yourself or wanting it for yourself. We're so evil at heart that many people can't even understand that coveting is evil. They don't even see that. I've, I've had more questions about that probably on a moral basis than just about anything else. What's wrong with coveting? You know, I mean, they don't use the word coveting, but I mean, 
God knows the heart that's behind it. That's what's wrong with it. Coveting is more subtle because it's all internal. It's the one ten commandment thing that's so in internal. It's not a sin expressed. It's a sin that's held in the heart. Covering what your neighbor has is against your neighbor, not for him. You can't want his stuff and love him. Your focus in the relationship is not his good, but his goods. Those are different things, right? That's not love. The very definition of love is that we seek the good of another, not their goods. Since Romans 13 says we owe love to everyone, there's just not any room there for coveting stuff because that taints, if not destroys, love. And you know, each of these negative commands, they're all do nots. But at the bottom, they're really all positive commands. Love guards the purity of marriage. Love supports the life of other people. Love respects the property of others. Love rejoices in my neighbor's blessings and doesn't want to have his blessings for myself. If a Christian loves his neighbor as he loves himself, he will take as much care for his neighbor's happiness and goods as, as his own. He will care for the strength of his neighbor's marriage. He will care for his family as much as your own family. He will care for his neighbor's interests as he does his own interests. That's love. Love your neighbor as yourself is designed. It's a beautifully crafted commandment for sinners. You ever think about it that way? Because that's what it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Assumption, you love yourself. Fact, you don't love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You don't love anyone as much as you love yourself. So the goal for sinners is to learn to love others with the same passion we have to take care of ourselves. And you can start at home and branch out from there. That's, a, that's the great challenge of love. That is love. We all love ourselves. We all put ourselves first in our own ways. Even people that help, hate themselves love themselves. They really do. I mean, they're all focused on themselves. We all think that way. Make sure we're taken care of. However we define that, we are the center of our world. Love has the same level of care for other people that we have for ourselves. And that is a huge moral step if you can get to that point. If everyone loved their neighbor as they loved themselves, this world would be a moral paradise. Wouldn't it? And it's so rare. It's a testimony to man's sin that it's so rare. I mean, we all talk like it. We all think we do that. But we really don't. It's hard enough to love your spouse as much as you love yourself. And yet that's what the scripture says. Husbands, love your wives. Cherish your wife as you cherish your own flesh. But a Christian needs to love this way. We are the ones with the resources to do it. And the understanding to start living like this. The other people don't. You can't wait for the world. They're never going to get there without Christ. We've got the resources. The world can't do it. Because the world has so many fears. Fear, the, the world fears not making it. The, the world fears losing the race of life or whatever you want to call it. The world fears letting other people have more fun. They're afraid of that. But we don't have those fears. Why don't we have those fears? Because we win. Have you read Romans 8? We, who, were you guys here for Romans 8? We win! That's the good news. We read it earlier today. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those 
who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. And verse 29, for whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He called. And those who He called, He justified. And those who He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We win. The elect win. All things are ours, so we don't make it in this life. So we lose. So let us have more fun. Guess what? It's only for a little while that it's like that. The ones who really win are the ones who win forever not for these 20, 30, 40, 50 years. All of this, all of it, one day, poof, it's going to be gone. Who will inherit what remains or what follows? That's what matters. God's people will. My life is half over. There's tons of stuff I haven't done that I want to do. But you know what? If I don't get to do it, who cares? I'm going to be with God, my Father, who says in my right hand are pleasures forever so I don't make it to Europe. So I don't get to see Israel. I'm not sure I want to go there now. but <laughs> So I don't get to do this or do that or, you know, whatever. I, if I go, great. But if I don't, it's okay. It's okay. So I'm going to spend the bulk of this life, I'm going to decide, I hope, and, and live it to spend the bulk of my life paying off my debt and I don't mean to indie Mac bank you know my first focus my obligation should be paying my debt which is to love everyone and I meet a lot of people so my debt is big and I have a debt to all of them to love them with the love of Christ it's a huge task I'm not, I might not have time to do all that other stuff that's a big task. Some of them are pretty hard to love, too. But that doesn't change my indebtedness one bit, just because it's hard. It's going to take some effort. That's not the way you lose paying those debts. That's the way you win. For Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so straightforward with us for laying on us the debt that Jesus so magnificently exemplified in his own life. A man who perfectly expressed love to everyone he met. A man who paid his debt to you perfectly as you were sovereign over his life. And as a man, he fulfilled every obligation. What an example. Oh, how far short we fall. How much we need his sacrifice. But how much opportunity is there in him to be different, to have our minds renewed, to live consistent with our new birth, our new position, our calling, our justification, to live for others, to love. We thank you in his name we pray. Amen.